and welcome to the Vicar's Watch Dibley. The podcast where three priests link our stories with those of the Reverend Geraldine Granger and other TV vicars and vicars from literature and film. I'm Kate. I'm Jenny. And I'm Ruthie. This episode we're talking about the classic vicar from Pride and Prejudice, Mr. Collins, and how he is the worst human being. No! No! He's just misunderstood! (laughs) Don't you dare! And also you, Miss Bambri-Gibbons. I find the weather's rather nice today. Terribly pleasant. The roads have been quite dry. Shall we take a turn about the room? (laughs) Um, (laughs) We're we're acting very very silly today. Um, We're doing something a bit different today, um, which we'll get to in a moment. But before we do that, how are you all doing? Yeah, Um, what have we loved this week? Caitlin, why don't you kick us off? What have you loved this week? I am on leave this week, so (gasps) I have been having a lovely lazy time. I've been playing computer games, and I've been playing with my dog, and I've been playing with my family. It's been a plain week. It's really nice. Yes. What have you loved this week, Ruthie? Oh, I'm trying to think. Um... One of the things that's quite exciting at the moment is the park near us, because it's now summer holidays, there's lots of exciting things going on. So there's lots to, to go and see. So um, not to make you all jealous, but there were some dinosaurs. Gosh, how terrifying. So did you know that velociraptors were actually about the size of a big dog? What? No! I knew they were small. It's Hollywood that's messed with us. So my dog Maggie is probably about the size of a velociraptor. Hmm. I did not know that. I've got someone very close to me in my family who doesn't believe that dinosaurs ever existed. Oh. <laughs> wow. So, that's so on speaking on their behalf, I'd be tempted to say, apparently there's a theory that their bones were just buried by the Victorians for something to talk about. Velociraptor was great and long. If they do exist, everybody, and you're thinking, what on earth is Jenny going on about? Then just let me know. If they do exist, (laughs) what I love about dinosaurs is how much um, we think they were actually more avian than lizards. So Hollywood has told us that dinosaurs are kind of lizard-like, whereas actually scientists are kind of proposing that they were a bit more bird-like and they were just giant chickens. angry birds just giant you angry see, no birds one, no one can decide what they're like because maybe they didn't eat jenny can we not can we not <laughs> <laughs> are we going to be a conspiracy theory podcast yeah, maybe we will have to be no i'm just kidding i do always challenge this belief by this person in my family but i think it is hilarious but it could well you know i don't want to offend anybody out there but um as for me i shall finish off our what have we loved this week and i've got a potentially Another outrageous claim. Um, There have been some birthdays in my family of late, and I would like to claim that I love birthday cake, and I believe that birthday cake tastes the best. Just full stop. There is never a better cake than a birthday cake. So what have I been loving this week? 
birthday cake. Birthday cake. <laughs> do you do you agree with this? I see what you mean. Okay, controversially, not a cake. <gasps> I don't think I like birthday cake. Oh, um, it's too sweet. Oh my gosh, really? I, I like well, cake, me... but I just don't like to eat lots of it. Oh. And birthday cake is too sweet and sugary for me. Already in this episode, we've we've come up against something, a falling out that we think may well continue yes. into the rest of this episode. Because uh, as uh, we, you may have guessed from our introductions, uh, mm-hmm. we are talking about Mr. Collins and Regency gentlemen, uh, well, clergymen as part of this. And I'm going to say this at the beginning, me and Kate, are really nerdy about this. So like hurt. we know our Jane Austen. Uh so Jenny, yeah. you have full permission to tell us off when Thank you. you finally just think, this is getting boring, guys. This is really mm. deep nerd. Um uh, and I'm trying to think of like a Regency phrase that you could use. I uh, think I think taking a turn about the room is a good idea. Oh like, yeah. We, we need to just give it a little break. Let's yeah. take a turn about the room because I'd like to say for those of you who are listening, thinking, "Oh no, I'm not sure if I'm going to get any of this because I don't know Jane Austen. I haven't met Mr. Collins in either literature or across films or TV." Then do not worry, dear listener, for I am with you. I have been doing some research and I did read the books ages ago, but unfortunately, I can remember so little. So if you're not a massive fan of Mr. Collins or you're worried that you're not going to get it, don't worry. You can be on Team Jenny, the non-nerd, uh, looking to Kate and Ruthie with. Mm-hmm. with Jaws aghast as they debate <laughs> yeah, his because I'm afraid life. I have come fully prepared to fight in defence of Mr. Collins, which I think is one of the most controversial Pride and Prejudice opinions out there. Because let me tell you, friends, I am deep in Pride and Prejudice. I am so deeply nerdy about Pride and Prejudice. I read Pride and Prejudice variations for fun. Um, people who who basically publish fan fiction because it's out of copyright. So um, and it is common in these um, to cast Mr. Collins as a villain. But let me tell you, I am going to defend Mr. Collins's mm. honour today. Goodness Ow, me. Outrageous. Uh, but for those who are in the know, I think before we started recording, we had a little conversation about what characters we think we would be for a Jane Austen novel. Mm. And I think maybe we should just throw that out there straight away uh, so people can make massive judgments. Mm. Great. Um, I I am a Lizzie Bennet. And I know that's really arrogant to say, but I think I am a bit of a Lizzie Bennet in lots of different ways. I think ways, we would agree. Uh, which is probably why I think Mr. Collins is a nightmare. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Jenny I, I am definitely I want to be Eleanor from Sense of Sensibility but I am Marianne you are such a massive Marianne and it's a lovely thing about you how about you Kate um, which Austin heroine do you think you are my favourite heroine oh. is Anne from Persuasion not the latest yeah. adaptation which we shall not talk about no. Um, it does not exist in my house. <laughs> um, I'm probably more and more a Charlotte, though. That's why you fancy Mr. Collins. <laughs> oh, we're not even fancy, you're defending. I'm defending <laughs> your you. husband. husband. Oh, that's really sweet. Oh, he might convince me. I feel like I'm stuck in the middle Maybe between. Maybe because Charlotte's life is one I actually quite like the idea of. Like, you wouldn't be allowed to be a vicar in Regency times. Marry with a vicar. Mm. Do the visiting and all the pastoral the work, which is closest way you're going to get. Yeah, exactly. And um, it's a fairly stable life for her. 
Yeah. So yeah. And and like the book, Charlotte and Lizzie are very different people in lots of ways, mm. but they are very good friends. Yeah. And equally, Kate and I are very different people in lots of different mm. ways, but we tolerate each other. <laughs> we, we are we are t- you are perfectly tolerable. <laughs> More than tolerable, hopefully. Thank you. <laughs> Um, before we go too far into <laughs> discussing the Reverend William Collins, we did just want to briefly mention some of the other clergy in Jane Austen, because there's a lot of clergy in Jane Austen. Mm. We have Henry Tilney, Edmund Bertram, Mr. Elton, Mr. Morland, Edward Ferrers, Charles Hayter, and oh. Dr. Grant. They are a common character type in austin's writing and can i ask is that because is it true that jane austen's dad was a clergyman here we go here comes my nerd facts so oh, yes. um yes jane austen's dad was a a vicar and two of her brothers also became clergymen and she had grandparents who were clergy as well and i've got a book on the spirituality of jane austen which i've not read properly it was given to me as an ordination present from oh. uh, my previous boss who we used to nerd out about jane austen with together and i think there's a couple of interesting things more, probably more than a couple uh, to note about jane austen and clergy so going to give a little a little teaser without trying to be too nerdy about her so yeah, Jane Austen grew up around lots of clergy. She knew her stuff, um, all male clergy, obviously, at this this time period, and having siblings of that. So she she knows the structures of the church really well because it's her lived experience. I think that's why there are so many clergymen who are part of her um, characters in her novels because that's... Jane Austen speaks about worlds that she knows and this is a world Mm. that she's very entrenched in. But she's also really critical of the church in lots of different ways as well, um, which I think is really brilliant in her books. And she is kind of critical about the way that um, characters like Mr Collins and, and Dr Grant, who I'd completely forgotten about as a clergy person just are trying to achieve status and the fact mm. that the church is busy ordaining these people. Um, she does kind of question that a little bit as well. But we don't always see lots of what the clergy are actually doing. We always see the social side of that because Jane, again, speaks about her world and what she knows. Mm. So all the conversations that um, take place in her books, there is always at least one woman in there. Um, because that's the world that she knows Mm. and talks about. So I believe, according to this book, we don't ever see in the book Mr Collins do a service or anything like that. We don't hear about his prayer life. We don't... Well, he reads the Four Dices sermons, doesn't he, um, to them, but we don't see that in the book, although we do see it in the films. We do, however, and we'll get to this, because I mined the book um, in preparation for this, and I discovered bits I hadn't really noticed before when reading it with a more priestly eye. Um, And we do actually get quite a big hint about how he spends his time in the parish, Um, which we'll get to um i did also i wanted to say again before we delve into actually talking about mr collins the reason why there's so many clergy in this particular social sphere um that jane austen writes about um it was really common in this regency period for the third son of a gentleman um Mm. to go into the church a first son was the heir the second would usually go into the army and then the third son would go into the church and it was they were not quite 
quitting the sphere and going into trade, they still maintained their status almost as gentry. Gentlemen. But they, at the same time, were not as well off as they would have been. Um, and But also the way that you got ordained back then. It's really interesting for us now because we go through such a rigorous process to get selected, mm. to be trained. Um, and you go through selection before you do training and before you get ordained. At that point, anyone with a degree could present themselves to a bishop or to a patron and say, yeah. I want to become a priest. And because at that time there wasn't the parish system as we understand it in that the Church of England has stipends and pays clergy to take care of parishes at that point you had more patrons so the local lord or lady of the manor um, has a living um, to give to someone so they pay for a priest to be present in their community Mm. Um, and that's relationship we'll get into patronage and that particular relationship between mm. mr collins and lady catherine de berg which is so highlighted in pride and prejudice mm. yeah so there are lots of differences mm. in how being a clergy person works now as opposed to being a clergyman in uh jane austen's day but there are some similarities mm. still so we will get into that later on and as uh, and those who are worried that we're not going to talk about Geraldine Granger as part of this, who are banging on their speakers going, what about Geraldine? Mm. Um, don't worry, we, we will get into her as well uh, and do a bit of comparison with them later. But we, we, we just want to talk about Mr Collins for a bit. Yeah. So, Mr Collins, we are a TV review podcast, sort of. Um <laughs> So let's very briefly just outline how many different people have played Mr. Collins that we know of. Pride and Prejudice has been adapted a lot of times. We're not going to be talking about all of those in detail. Um, we will be referring to the book a little bit as well. But the main adaptations which we probably know the best are the BBC 1995 TV series. The classic absolute classic um my favorite adaptation of pride and prejudice but not mm. my favorite adaptation of mr collins this second adaptation most people will be familiar with is a 2005 film starring kira knightley um the actor who plays mr collins in this is tom hollander who we also know as adam from rev yeah um, then um, we have Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, released in 2016. Um, that has <laughs> Matt Smith as Mr. Collins, um, who we know as the 11th Doctor in Doctor Who. Um, you may also be familiar with Lost in Austin, the BBC series from 2008, which had a young woman from a modern world finding herself transported into Pride and Prejudice. Um, Mr. Collins in that series was played by Guy Henry. I'm, I'm sure throughout this we'll kind of refer to these different uh, mm. versions of Pride and Prejudice. But Jenny, you you are not as nerdy about us, so uh, let's let's take a turn about the room and <laughs> <laughs> go to you, Jenny. Which which versions of these have you seen, and which kind of Mr. Collins is most familiar to you? 
Mm, good question. So I did read the book a long time ago, but unfortunately my my brain doesn't retain information or stories very well. Um, so in my research, I did have a look at the kind of some of the key classic clips. Ooh, lots of C's. Uh, in any case, um, about Mr. Collins. And I think, to be honest, I know this is probably a bit like, ah, oh, but the Keira Knightley adaptation of uh, Pride and Prejudice is the one that comes to mind most. Mm. And when I was looking back at the Mr. Collins of that kind of, uh, yeah, the version of Mr. Collins in that adaptation, I was like, yeah, that's probably the one that comes to mind the most for me. Let's talk a little bit then about who Mr. Collins is um i want to start with his initial description his physical description from the book and then we can think also about how he is in all those adaptations as well so in the book this is his description he is a tall heavy looking young man of five and twenty so he's 25 Mm. and he is grave and stately with formal Mm. manners So he is a serious young man um, with very formal manners. He's not... Mm. We know Elizabeth Bennet really likes the bubbly, lively manner sort of people who are charming, like Wickham and Colonel Fitzwilliam and Bingley. And Mr. Collins is in contrast to that. That does surprise me a bit because that's not necessarily the Mr. Collins that we meet in the adaptations. He tends to be sort of small and humble and awkward and sort of like. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Sort of like tall and yeah. stately and serious. He's a sort and, of little sort of... toad of a man, isn't he? Yeah. In the adaptations. And uh... my my biggest bone to pick is in the adaptations, he's cast as significantly older than the character is so the character is 25 that's really young for contrast mr darcy is 28 um and i think bingley i don't know bingley's age but i think he's probably about the same age as mr collins um elizabeth is 20 um for reference i think the reason that we get mr collins cast as this older not very attractive quite short and like you said Jenny blurp like a yeah. yeah that weird little toady. Like just, it's just very awkward yeah the, yeah the reason I think he's cast like that is because we are seeing Mr Collins through Elizabeth's eyes um in the book it's easier for them to do that because everything is focalized through Elizabeth so although it's um an all-knowing omniscient narrator everything is shown to us through Elizabeth's perception of the world. Um, When it comes to film, it's harder to do that and let us know that we're seeing one person's interpretation of events. Um, And I think the way that they are making it so that we feel about Mr. Collins the way that Elizabeth feels about Mr. Collins, um, so Mm. that we don't have a disconnect of saying, oh, actually, he's a nice young man. Why does Elizabeth hate him so much? Mm. Is casting him as someone who we're not going to find as attractive or interesting as some of the other male characters. Where I've just thought about this, and actually if you do cast him as a 25-year-old man who is tall and quite serious looking, mm. um, I think there's a lot more danger of him being portrayed or seen as a villain. And mm. by having him shorter and older, he becomes more comedic. Yeah. Um. So his kind of... uh 
desire for status and having mm. a proper wife and all this kind of thing looks more villainous if you have a young, uh, tall, heavy. <laughs> but anyway, this is who he is. And he's a serious young man who is very polite and formal. Um, but also he... Um, he invites He's himself. Not polite. No, 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 no. Let's get into this. Let's get into this. He is, but his manners don't fit what Elizabeth likes, and I think a lot of it is because he's awkward. He's trying to be polite, and it's not quite working. He has invited himself to make peace with um, the Bennets because um, his father and Mister Bennet were at odds. Mister Collins is the heir to Longbourn and he knows this and he's come to try and make amends it's not helped by Mr Bennett deliberately frustrates events by not preparing his family for Mr Collins's arrival Imagining, imagine how differently things would have gone if Mr Bennett had prepared everyone and said my heir's coming, We've got, let's, let's be nice to him, let's make friends with him he's making a really generous gesture of trying to come and make amends but Ruthie, what do you think? But... <laughs> You're about to explode. I can feel rage building up in me about this <laughs> because he all all of his, the way he acts is self serving. It's he's making amends because he's going. You know, he says about you know his father and and finding that difficult. But I I also think he has an ulterior motive of scouting out the house that he will once have. And because he likes this power and he likes the fact that he has Lady Catherine de Bourgh as his patroness and all this kind of stuff, he wants that kind of status. And I don't know if that comes from a background of like feeling inferior and that mm. kind of thing, but knowing he's the heir and he will go up in the world because of it, Mm. And the way he talks, especially in the BBC adaption, mm. uh, if we're going from film, well, TV in this case, the way he talks is all about wanting to be better. And when he comes to choose a, a, a spouse um, from the uh, the Bennett children, he picks the hot one. He sees the most beautiful one. And there is the theory that Mary might have been a, a better match for Collins in lots of different ways. Is she the youngest they, daughter? She's a middle Mary's daughter. in the middle and she is very serious as well. And actually they might have been a good match. Kate's got a finger up at me. In contrast, like uh, counter counterpoint, counter <laughs> argument. And it's not that I disagree with you. I, I do think he, Mr. Collins has negative parts for his character, but I said I would be his defender. Um, he picked the eldest. So yes, Jane is the most beautiful, as we're told. And, and spoken but, for, wasn't she? Yeah, but he didn't know that. So yeah. he went, oh. and he has been advised to find a wife from the Bennets. And if we look at this from his perspective, actually it's fairly logical in terms of making sure that the Bennet daughters, those sisters, are provided for, knowing he knows that he, in, as the heir, is, take, mm. is threatening their livelihood. And by marrying one of them, he will be able to secure the safety of all of them once Mr. Bennett dies, because they will all be family. Um, mm. So he, it is logical for him to, to approach the eldest daughter, who at that point he doesn't know is spoken for, and isn't spoken for, even when Mrs. Bennett then says, oh, she'll soon be engaged. Um, once yeah. he finds out that she is likely to be engaged, he then goes to 
the second eldest daughter, who Mrs. Bennet tells him would be welcoming of his advances. And and she's almost as almost as handsome as Lizzie. No, almost <laughs> as handsome as, so, as Jane. Yeah. As Jane. Uh, Sorry, Austin's so, guns. Yes, again, I think you can... Uh, for me, I can understand his logic. It Maybe it's flawed logic, um, but I can understand it from in that kind of social context. Yeah. And I think it's really difficult because... I'm going to make a Mary Marianne potential statement here. Love isn't logic. It's yeah. not logical. It's feelings-based. And so we're like, oh, Mr. Collins, what are you doing? Because this so doesn't feel mm. right. But what's also interesting is that from his very logical, uh, doesn't really have feelings, but has uh, many awkward sentiments that he's rehearsed, that's the the best that he can do. So you kind of feel sorry for him as well. Hence why I get, Ruthie, your outrage. But also, Caitlin, I understand your need to defend him. You're so diplomatic. Do we we judgment him? Do we take a judgmental thing and judge him? Or do we compassionately go, bless you, bless you, Mr. Collins and your logical brain? He he has these two sides so he has these two sides he is obsequious and indiscreet oh can we get a definition of obsequious (laughs) yeah as obsequious means he is well it's what mr collins is he he sucks up to power he's a kiss ass i don't like that he does that yeah i desperately don't like he's indiscreet he doesn't guard his words like he says stuff that embarrasses people he doesn't have that sort of verbal self-control However, I do think that he is well-meaning and ultimately good-hearted. He is problematic in that because of his time and context, he doesn't respect women. um, And he doesn't respect the idea that women have um, minds of their own. Um, But how much of that is as as a product of his time? Because even Mr. Bennett, some of the stuff he says about his girls... Is oh awful. yeah, Mr. Bennett is a lot more problematic um, than we we think of him as yeah. the lovely doting father, but pff, um, no. And how much of Mr. Collins is as a product of his background and his upbringing? So what we know about his background is that his father um, was illiterate and miserly, um, not a nice Dear. man and not an educated man. Huge contrast to Mr. Bennett, who is educated and uses his wit as a weapon. Um, mm. We then know that um, Mr. Collins went to university. You have to go to university to get ordained. And there's a bit in the book where we're talking about why he has such loving feelings towards Lady Catherine. And he talks about how she treated him as any other gentleman. She And she accepted him where I think he was probably a bit of an outcast at university as well. So you have this man who's, Mm. he's never, although he is going to inherit an estate, he's not really necessarily been brought up as a gentleman. So he's already in this weird space socially um, where he's not really, potentially not accepted um, on either side of that divide as working class or as gentry. (laughs) I'm desperately trying to read Ruthie's face to yeah. see if she's hearing what you're saying and resonating, or if the fan, <laughs> like if her flame is being fanned even Just greater. For a moment, but they... forget that you th- that you're Lizzie Bennet, and and, and and think of him, like as like as not a romantic interest. 
I I understand your arguments in mm-hmm. lots of different ways. In that you know, if he's come from that kind of background and uh, and him not fitting in either place, mm-hmm. uh, I understand the difficulties that come with that, and that that isn't an easy place to be in. But it's his desperate social climbing that makes him so unappealing mm-hmm. to me, and the way he fawns over people and or. All his actions seem to serve those above him and therefore he isn't necessarily mindful of those who are below him. And part of that comes from um, just uh, watching the the stuff that that's how directors have interpreted mm. them. So like in the um, in the BBC series, there's that scene where um, Lady Catherine comes out of church and he like pushes everyone out the way in order mm. to let Lady Catherine through. And I know that's that's from the TV and that's not necessarily from the book, but y- you just get that hint from everything that he's just he's doing it all to impress the lady who is who he really loves. <laughs> and it's exactly, and maybe it's because, and I know we're going to come on to this movie, that he gets her worth from her, so he's mm. doing everything he can to value her because she's the one from where he dictates his identity and worth maybe where he should get his worth from jesus exactly we'll get to that i think insecurity is a key Mm. quality of mr collins and whether we agree with how that's manifested or not um and, and how he deals with that i think insecurity is a major quality that he has yeah. Now, yeah, I, I to be honest, this is probably like my last input that's mm-hmm. interesting, um, just because I have... <laughs> that's I'm not true, so Jenny. Oh, very sweet to me. I have to say, the one thing that really stuck out to me uh, when I was doing my research and watching this TV and film adaptation was his lust for uh, expensive things, wealth. He talks about his staircase and, you know, tries to make it sound impressive but then says, oh, but you should see, you know, Lady Catherine de Bourgh, for she has not one, but many staircases. Mm. And they're standing in, you know, a room with her at one point, and he whispers to Lizzie, I think, or maybe Charlotte, this rug alone is £300. <laughs> and, like, he's he's absolutely um, he, like a moth to a flame. He's so attracted to wealth and splendour and grandness. And I have to say, that makes my skin crawl. Like, mm. his materialism is something that I think, I'm not sure if I can look past that even with and I mean I, I don't want to be a judgmental coup but I I do find that very difficult especially in his role as clergy and it leads me to ask the question of do you think if Mr Collins were around today he would pass his bap but the thing is we don't see enough of Mr Collins outside like in his comfort zone for us to really make any judgment or him talking about his faith. Like what we see is an awkward young man out of his comfort zone. Um, and yes, he's not behaving well, but I, I think we're not seeing the full extent of his character. And we'll get to this in a moment when we talk about the clues we do have about how he spends his time when he is in parish. Mm. I think that's an interesting question, though, mm. about, you know, would these, if we go back to the other gentlemen that we know mm. who are clergy in Austin's novels, I think very few of them would get ordained today, mm. if any of them. Possibly Edmund yeah. Bertram. What who, about Edward Ferris? Edward Ferris, 
I don't know. Edmund Bertram, you hear talk more about um, his his interest in the church mm. and what what church is about, um, and that's uh, he's the the, the kind of mm. hero in uh, Mansfield Park. And Fanny Price is the absolute worst, but mm. that's probably because I'm a Lizzie. Um, <laughs> um, um, whether you kind of don't know enough about the others, but I think lots of them have kind of taken the route because they are the second son or yeah. third son. Um, and so I think, yeah, it's a very different world and I don't think lots of them would be ordained. Yeah, let, let's be honest. The women might have been though. Yeah, exactly. Hooray! Let's be honest. But not gotten into this because they love the Lord and want to serve the people. Like, yeah. that is it's not... It's duty. It, if we're that. basing it on that standard, no, Mr. Collins would not pass BAP um, mm. because he's just not talking about that. But then that wasn't the culture of the clergy that we see in Austin. I'm not going to say that no clergy at yes. the time did that, but anyway, the, moti- scary, the motivation though, is security. <laughs> Mr. Collins's motivation was probably security, knowing that he was going to inherit um, land, so he needed to sort of still move in this sphere he probably couldn't go into law he's not a very very intelligent man that we know um he went into a church (laughs) because that's where the unintelligent people go let's talk about i want to talk about how mr collins um is in parish and what he sees his duties as being and i'm afraid i am drawing from a book on this i'm not quite sure it's touched very much at all um, in the adaptations, I think you sometimes... see him do a service in the film, uh, yeah. the two thousand five adaptation. Yeah. We hit where he accidentally yeah. talks about intercourse, intercourse yeah, instead of the intercourse. <laughs> <laughs> so um, at the Neverfield Ball, um, which is one of those key scenes in Pride oh. and Prejudice, um, yeah. and this is one of the times I think we do see it in the adaptations. After eating, there's um, an opportunity for young ladies to exhibit. Um, Mary plays a piano, and <laughs> not like that, Jenny. not like that, Jenny. Uh, to exhibit their talents and show what kind of company they'd be in the evening. <laughs> oh my goodness! And basically, to show off their talents in terms of playing piano or singing. Um, Mr. Collins stands up um, and gives a little bit of a speech about how he would like to be allowed to sing. Um, in definitely the BBC version of this, it's really played to show how unlikable he is, how badly he reads the room, and just how awkward he is. But what he does say in his speech, his extended speech, is why he thinks it's okay for clergy to like music. He's justifying, um, that he has interests outside of the dour and formal and sombre lifestyle that some people might expect clergy should have and he mm. talks about <laughs> that's still true yes still very true <laughs> he talks about how it's important for a clergyman to spend time agreeing tithes pleasing his patron writing his own sermons and then he also has to stretch the rest of his time to his parish duties and for the care and improvement of his dwelling that he should have attentive and conciliatory manners to everyone and especially to those who he owes preferment and he should also testify respect to the family. 
See, that's lovely in principle, but a lot of that will be serving to Lady Catherine, won't it? Because she, she'll she pay his salary. So he owes lots of time to the patron, mm. um, who in this case is Lady Catherine. Improving his own dwelling, uh, that's making his house nice. Um, the families that he should be concerned with, probably the de Burgs. But then... But then... <laughs> I'm going to continue <laughs> through the journey of a book. Um, later on, once Elizabeth visits Hunsford, which is where his vicarage is, that's his parish, um, he leads them on a tour through his parish. Um, and Elizabeth is deeply frustrated with this. She doesn't like that she's being guided around. So we see this very much coloured through her lenses. But mm. he leads her way through every walk and crosswalk walk in his parish. He could number the fields in every direction and could tell how many trees there were in the most distant clump. This tells us that he has spent his time in his parish. He knows every square centimetre of that land and he sings its praises. And mm. Lizzie doesn't like this because he goes on in his usual way. You know, he over praises um, mm. But he knows it. And then um, in chapter 20, uh, sorry, and then in chapter 30, a little bit later, um, Elizabeth is reflecting on the fact that Mr. Collins seems to go spend a lot of time going to Rosings. And she doesn't understand it, except Charlotte thinks it's necessary too. And she thinks that it is um, to spend time giving obeisance uh, to Lady Catherine de Burgh. But there's also a hint. He says he takes the needs of all the cottages to his patron. The minutest of concerns are carried to her. And on one hand, this could be seen as um, meddling and he's not keeping confidentiality. But at the same time, he is taking concerns to a person who has the power to improve the lives of those people. So if a cottage needs mending... It's Lady Catherine, who is the one who's meant to mend it, and so, so, so it's the duty. That's not his job. No, but it's, it's the duty of the landed gentry yeah. to care for their tenants. That's yes. that's one of the big ticks. That's one of the big positives of Mister Darcy. So, yeah. is Mister Collins is clearly spending enough time with the people in the cottages to let Lady Catherine know? what needs to be done to improve their lives. But that's the role of the steward. So Lady Catherine would have a steward mm. to care for her land and that would be his job, would to, well, it would be his mm. job to, to know what's going on with the cottages. Now, if he's, you know, not doing that properly and therefore Collins is stepping in and saying, you know, actually this person's really struggling and they need their house built, and mm. da, 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 fair enough. If he's doing it for gossip then that's a different thing. And and I wonder if he's slightly using it as an excuse to go to Rosings Park more but than uh, necessary. We're not told either way, except, <laughs> no. except through Elizabeth's prejudice. Elizabeth does not like Mr. Collins, therefore anything he does is bad. But the thing is as well, is you know a person by their actions. And when you were describing his day-to-day -day Catherine, uh, Kate, sorry, mm. Catherine, Kate and, and Catherine. how... Catherine. Catherine. And his manner. So you're not a Catherine. I'm not a Catherine. 
think you are for a second there. Sorry about that. Were for a second there. That's all very well and good if your mindset is all about what your cottage looks like here on earth. But surely the job of the vicar mm. is to consistently and constantly point people to what's to come. And again, this brings us back to his obsession of what is here and what is now and like the wealth and the grandeur of things. Which which does haunt me a little bit and why I think maybe he possibly wouldn't pass the nine criteria, which yeah. I know we've already spoken about. <laughs> but you're, you're right. I think for me, where I land is, I think Mr. Collins is not a bad man. I think he's a good man with a good heart at his core, but he will get to this. I think he is insecure and I also think he's not a very spiritual man. Um, oh, which is which is really the only thing that matters. Yeah, which is, <laughs> it could be argued. But then like, you, do you could also make the argument mm. about Geraldine Granger. <gasps> How we does this very rarely see her pray or telling people about Jesus? We see it a bit, but that's not the focus of the Vicar of Dibley. Well, that's true. I mean, it couldn't be. It couldn't be. I suppose could it? Otherwise, people wouldn't watch it. You've said it, that Geraldine doesn't pray that much. <laughs> it is one of the things, isn't it, with um, mm. in comparison to Jane Austen and Vicar of Dibley, is that we see the social side a lot more than the mm. kind of spiritual side in lots of ways. It is there, and it's you know hinted in the text, and we do see services that Geraldine does, and we do see her um, in, often in times of crisis praying or... Uh, when she really, really fancies someone, she <laughs> she turns to the Lord. Um, but you do see that background side a lot more. Agree. And also what I would say is for some people, as the vicar, you are, now for better or for worse, I believe this, this could be true, that you are, you represent something of God very clearly to your parishioners. Mm. And although we might not always see the interior life of Geraldine Granger, the way she is, now I know sometimes she's not perfect and we've talked a little bit about how she can be a bit um, harsh with Alice occasionally, but actually <laughs> the way that she is tells of God's warmth and love mm. and welcome and acceptance. Mm. And like I say, I don't I don't get that vibe from Mr. Collins, which makes me feel uncharitable towards, mm. you know, defending him as a priest as a vicar because in Ger with Geraldine you you get the warmth and the welcome and the love of God and with Mr Collins you don't how much of that is Elizabeth Bennett and I keep bringing us back to this but we are limited in our knowledge of Mr Collins by what Elizabeth Bennett obser observes and what she thinks of him does Elizabeth Bennett follow him to church does she spend time with him in his study as he's preparing his sermons. Does she actually listen when he speaks? Which is a point of credit to Mr Collins, is that he's writing his own, because it was very common for... Uh, there were people who would write sermons and it would be more often normal than not to just read someone mm. else's sermons from a book. So he is doing that thinking. Um, and I think, in defence of Lizzie, <laughs> she sees the way that he serves her friend and so sees the advantages that Charlotte gets by being married to him and now she has status and she has a place in the household and she's she's able to do things that um, she wasn't able to do at home and sees that he is attentive to her and does care for her in his mm. own unique way. So I think she does start to see some of the positives in Collins through the way he acts towards her friend, 
though she may still think him a ridiculous <laughs> What really sold me on Mr. Collins was that little passage about him showing them around his parish and knowing it so yeah. intimately. Oh, I wish I, I knew my parish that intimately that I could say, but then I've done that. Like Ruthie, when Ruthie came to visit me and we went on a walk around my parish and I said, oh, so-and-so lives in that house and this is about this place. And there's something yeah. about you've spent so much time walking uh, your parish that you know who lives where and what everything is. I think it's worth pointing out, though, that the way we would understand a parish now is very mm. different to how it would have been then. So a parish for um, Mr. Collins might be 30 houses. Mm. So that's just 30 families that he needs to know. Whereas, I don't know if you two know off the top of your head the number of people in your parishes. Uh, around 6,000 for us. It's a heck of a lot more than 30 families. Mm. And so his intimate knowledge of his parish is very commendable. I like that a lot. But he is working on a lot smaller scale than we are. <laughs> so is Geraldine Granger. Yeah, so is Jerry. That's a very good point. She is working with a village. Um, yeah. Can I just check, though, on the topic of Mr. Collins and his parish? Are you absolutely sure? And I don't know because I haven't read the book for 100 years. Are you absolutely sure that he's not displaying the parish and his glory so that he looks great because he's the incumbent there? I think there's a little bit of it that he's showing off to Lizzie in a look at the lovely prizes you could have won. If you'd married me, you would have got all this kind of thing. That's no, how no, I interpret I, it. I disagree. Whereas Kate does not. Um, <laughs> the book is being book opened. Is I think open. we're going to get um, some. He's actually, when he says his goodbyes to Elizabeth, um, he says, I know that um, Hunswood must seem extremely dull to a young lady like yourself. Um, there's little to tempt anyone to our humble abode, but the favour of your company has been much felt. Um, he really is very thankful that she's visited, and particularly thankful for Charlotte. Um, he, yes. And he, and he says, you know, he he almost starts saying about he he is still a little bit hurt by the fact that Lizzie turned him down, and that's obvious. But yeah. he says. Um, on this point, I'll be silent. Only let me assure you, my dear Miss Elizabeth, that I can from my heart most cordially wish you equal felicity in mar marriage. Um, <laughs> Which, he says that bit in the BBC adaption and then does the really creepy wave at Charlotte and she's like, what are you doing? But, but that's <laughs> the, that adaptation. And I'm, I, so I got... I, I'll admit, I was rereading specifically looking for Mr. Collins and therefore separating myself from Elizabeth. So when you mm. do that, it's really jarring to suddenly have Liz Elizabeth's little asides about how she wouldn't like, enjoy this and ha so how could Charlotte possibly enjoy this? And Charlotte must be so happy when Mr. Collins disappears. Like, But she is. That's how, she, that's no, how it's no, played no, in the but, TV and the films. That's how it's played in the films, but that's not clear in a book. Charlotte never says that. That's just Elizabeth's perception of things. But we're not talking about Mr. Collins as a romantic interest. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I think when I was reading it, what I got, I got the impression that he's just doing what any of us would do if someone visited. We're showing them around. Yes, but I would say, and then, uh, yeah, he refers to his humble abode and then talks about the wonderful things that are a part of it. So the, the humbleness does not seem quite so humble. 
So when I talk about my house here, I am very fortunate to live in a bigger house than mm. I would ever expect to. And so that's how I talk about mm. my house. I, w- I would never go and say, oh, look at my big fancy house. Isn't it amazing? Mm. Haven't I done well? I would say, you know, this is Mr. a gift Collins. and it's amazing. I don't think well, no, he, what, what he, does, he talks about his humble abode what, and then shows all the different bedrooms. No, but no, his... this this is this is later. <laughs> this is him saying goodbye. And he, what he does do is he plays up his connection to Lady Catherine, and we oh, see this yeah. throughout when he's showing around the house. He's saying Lady Catherine suggested we did X, Y, and Z. So I want us to get to because we'll keep we're dancing around this. So I want to get to one of the themes I want us to discuss, which is imposter syndrome. I am convinced having reapproached mr collins that he has imposter syndrome now for those of you who don't know imposter syndrome particularly for clergy is when you feel like an imposter when you feel like you aren't everything that you should be for your job that you have been given this authority that you didn't earn and you feel a lack of confidence you feel insecure um i think mr collins has this he's young He has a disadvantaged background. This job has fallen in his lap. We're told it's very much by coincidence that he was recommended to Lady Catherine. And it's a secure, quite a nice job, quite a nice place. He's in a nice house. He's got a patroness who is holding his hand quite a lot. And yes, we wouldn't want, we wouldn't like how controlling she is and how involved she is. But for someone who's not sure of their job, he hasn't received specific training on how to be a priest. Um, mm. I think, but none of them do, do they? None of them do. But I think he has. I hadn't thought about imposter syndrome, and that's why he I keeps do... making appeals to authority. There's the matter of confidence as well, isn't there? Mm. That um, I think he is lacking in confidence in so many different ways, mm. and. Geraldine has lots of confidence, but also speaks when she hasn't got that confidence. So I think I think Colin doesn't have the confidence, but acts like he does in lots mm. of different situations. And so, you know, he perhaps he doesn't think he is a catch in marriage, but talks about how he's a mm. catch in marriage. And, you know, you might not get an offer as good as this kind of thing. And, and you know, look at Charlotte, what she's got. She's done really well, hasn't he's she? He's trying because... to justify himself. Yeah. Whereas yeah. Geraldine um, is very kind of self-confident in lots of ways and she knows who she is. Mm. She knows that she's a beautiful babe of God with a delicious barb and a magnificent bosom. Yeah. Yeah. And all that kind of thing. <laughs> but she also, there are times where she isn't confident and she admits to that sometimes. So like the episode where, where Mrs. Cropley dies, where she has that mm. moment of vulnerability before going in, knowing that she hasn't done this before and um, needs to kind of mm. lean on her parishioners for that. And there's, there's different points that she does lean on the, the, the parish council for various different things. So I think, yeah, that Geraldine comes from a background where she's very different to the people around her when she first arrives in Dibley. But she learns to listen to them and and grows in confidence from there. I would say the key contrast with how they both deal with lack lack of confidence when they have it is that Mr. Collins makes appeals to authority. So he makes lots of references to Lady Catherine because she's the authority. It should be God, obviously. But he makes appeals to authority. He, He gains his legitimacy through relation to Lady Catherine. 
And yeah, also yeah, he too. over-apologizes. He know he does notice when he steps wrong and then he over-apologizes, um, which we do see and, and that, that's told to us explicitly. Geraldine yeah. uses humour. Yeah. Yeah. And they are both characters that are played for comedy a lot of mm-hmm. the time um, in various different situations. Have either of you dealt with imposter syndrome? All the time. <laughs> um, all the time. I think especially um, I started teaching on a course about growing your church um, called Leading Your Church into Growth, which is a fantastic course. Would recommend it highly to any clergy. Yes. Um, I started teaching on that from when I was about, 1920 now I was working in a church that was growing and I was involved in that uh but for a long time and I still do whenever I teach on that and I still do when I'm teaching my job just stand there and think people are going well she's a young woman she hasn't got a clue what she's doing when I wasn't ordained it was even worse because I thought they'd go well she's not got a collar she's so she doesn't Mm -hmm. know what it's like um and would just stand in a room and think people are judging me and I still feel that Every time I stand up to do that, even though I I have the authority, I do know what I'm talking about in lots of different things, I stand there and go, I haven't got a clue. Um, and these people know it. Yeah. <laughs> mm. It's tough. I, I feel like I definitely have identified it um, in my ministry. So I was ordained in 2016. So after the last... Well, how many years is that? Six years, six and a half years. I must, I, I, I definitely have thought, oh, I'm feeling a certain way. And I've thought really, really, diff- like, I've been like, why am I feeling like this? And I've noticed it probably is feeling like a bit of an imposter, not feeling like you have the right to be in the room. Mm-hmm. I think that is a definitely think, something I have contended with. But I also often I kind of, I like, just imagining being at the front of church, there's two things. The first thing is, is I don't really know what I'm doing, but I absolutely know that God is real, that God loves these people. And so I will offer the little that I have to offer. Oh, and Jenny. the second, ah, I'm sorry, I was closing my eyes to really properly think about how I felt at the front of church. But oh. the other thing is, is like the awe of being there. Like I'm imagining at the moment, mm. like being behind the uh, the altar for Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. And one of the prayers we often pray before we start our services at my church is like, um, and something we say um, as part of the Eucharistic prayer is like, almost thank you, God, that we can stand in your presence and serve you. And it's, mm-hmm. like, I know that I have such little to give, but I really desperately know and desperately believe about a God who has, you know, a lot to give. And if all of us can group together and channel that, or if just one or two of us can stand at the front and you know direct people into knowing that then god is oh my goodness totally going to use that and so it excites me that the little i have i mean obviously kingdom economy it's all topsy-turvy that god will use that and and so i would like to take this moment to encourage you dear listener if you're thinking like oh i'd love to do something in my church or i'd love to be active but like ruthie like me probably like kate and you think, well, what, what am I, you know, what am I about? What have I got to offer? Is there anything I could actually do? The answer is absolutely yes. Mm. Um, and yeah, to listen out for calling, because actually it's God who equips us. And mm. yeah, at every age, every season of life, I think that's something that's always on offer for us. <laughs> well, that's a little rant there, sorry. No, no it's beautiful. Lovely. 
I think the imposter syndrome stuff can often come from being a young woman up front as well and Mm -hmm. feeling like this is a very male, older male dominated space um, and therefore um, feeling that you need to make a mark and get everything right (laughs) because uh, you're kind of apologising for being there yourself. I don't know, do you agree, Kate? I think for me, my imposter syndrome is less about the kind of upfront church stuff because I've been doing that since I was like 15 like even making the argument I'm a young woman like I've been doing it for like <laughs> over 15 years like yeah. I've got experience um for me the imposter syndrome kicks in when I'm chairing PCC when I'm doing mm-hmm. the more legal side of things kind of on the governance where I think you're ask- you're looking to me to make this decision for you, but you're the ones who have the expertise in this parish. You've got more experience here. Yeah. I don't feel there's things like when I've been asked to mediate a conflict and I had to suddenly do a lot of studying to work out what I'm supposed to be doing because I didn't have the expertise in that particular area. And I was thinking, I, I'm not equipped for this. I, I don't feel... <laughs> I heard someone reflected to me recently that when you move from curacy to being a rector or an incumbent or a priest in charge, it's like moving from being an intern to like a CEO, a CEO <laughs> or from a newly qualified teacher to head teacher. Yeah. And there's such a jump in authority and what's expected of you to know how to mm. do. Um, and for me that's like that's where my imposter syndrome kicks in because I think I'm just I don't have the experience for this side of things it's so tough isn't it because there is maybe it can be that there is expectations of ourselves or Mm. of others onto us that we know what we're doing but actually Mm. I think I think this is the way that God designed humans. Now, this is a big statement, could be wrong, but actually we need each other. And I love that the way that the leadership of the church works is the vicar never makes a decision on her or his own, but actually you are a part of the senior leadership with your PCC because you expect that their skills and their strengths, um, you know, will be put to use. And I think that and when you said, Kate, I don't feel equipped. I was like, oh my goodness, every single day, most all the way through the day, I feel like that. Mm. But that's what keeps me constantly going. Okay, God, I really need you now. Like, please, Holy Spirit, please speak on my behalf. Please, Holy Spirit, please comfort this person. And I, I say that because I was even praying that today. And I still do every time I do a funeral. I was talking to somebody this morning about this. And she said, how on earth do you do it? How do you do a funeral? And I was like, I honestly don't know. I literally just have to pray my face off because you both know I'm I'm soft as anything. I weep all the time. And if I'm with other people who are feeling sad, I sponge it all up and I want to cry as well. Um, And I I never feel equipped to do anything. But I think that's almost, it's that whole thing of, well, when we are your weakest, that's when God is at God's strongest. And just that whole trying to fully rely on God and position our life to be like, hey, God, this has to be you because I can't. is like one of the things, well, that keeps, that's probably the only reason why I'm still here. Exactly. Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. so when bringing things back to Mr. Collins, I think what we see is a really unhealthy way of dealing with imposter syndrome, if he has it. Yeah. But yeah. what he does is he, like you said, he 
becomes materialistic and he becomes um, obsequious. Um, he um, makes these big appeals to the authority and gets and borrows the authority of Lady Catherine de Bourgh in an unhealthy way, in a way mm. that isn't pleasant for anyone else. Um, mm. And he is making his insecurity um, into a disaster when he should be relying on the people around him um, and trusting other people and particularly relying on God. And I think what we see, and I think actually most adaptations show this, is that once Mr. Collins marries Charlotte, he does calm down. Yeah. um, And he starts to improve. And I think what we see is him starting to rely on Charlotte um, rather than Lady mm, Catherine interesting. Um, mm. to settle him. And that's much mm. better because Charlotte actually knows him and actually spends time with him um, and is actually a fairly sensible <laughs> <she>? woman. <laughs> he all seems busy and out. <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll not get into that debate again. Um, mm. So, yeah, I wanted to talk about imposter syndrome because it was something that was new to me in terms of putting that into his character as I was reading it. Yeah. Um, It's interesting that as well, you've mm -hmm. talked about in that, is um, his reliance on Lady Catherine de Bourgh, Mm. who is his patron, which is something we wanted to talk about as well, uh, what patrons do. So um, it's, it's not as common a practice now, of having a individual person mm. be a patron to a church. More often it's a diocese or it might be um, a group or something like that, mm. but they do still exist and it's often in rural communities. Have either of you got a, a, a person who's a patron to your church? Yes. One of my patrons for one of my parishes is a prime minister. <gasps> wow. Uh, we are in... Poor you. Yeah, we are in suspension at the moment, which means... Um, <laughs> That in, instead of incumbent, I'm a priest in charge just because there's restructuring going on in Medinary. Um, so the patronage is technically suspended. Um, we'll not get into that. It's it's boring, it's legal, I don't quite understand it. But yes, technically, yeah. um, I have a patron uh, in one of my parishes. And part of the role is kind of that they oversee and look after mm. the church and the bill and, and you as a priest and make sure that you're doing your mm. job properly. So um, I've got friends who've uh, had patrons who are people um, mm. and as opposed to institutions. And so they'd meet with them to just talk things through. And, and sometimes they're not people who are connected to the church in any way other than throwing money at it. Mm. And so don't necessarily have that faith, but other times they are people who are mm. and would engage with it. And so Collins has got his, his patroness of Lady Catherine de Bourgh, who seems to be interested mm. in, in what's going on uh, around. And, and Mr. Collins provides that. Mm. And, uh, it's not explicitly said, but it's slightly implied that David Horton is that to Geraldine, yeah. or even if he isn't a patron, maybe historically he, he takes that role, mm. doesn't he, of kind of overseeing the church in a different way. Well, it was my my supposition for trying to work out how Geraldine only has one parish and why this tiny village of Dibley has its own priest, um, and the only way I can make that work in actual real world church logic is that it's a patronage um and there are a few around still where it's working like this where there is a landed gentry type person who is paying for the living 
is exceptionally rare now. Um, but it's, it's interesting because we have this dynamic of you need to keep the person who is paying for you sweet. Do you remember? I don't know if you were part of this lecture at Cranmer Hall where we trained. We had someone come who had been, had. Um, I don't know if it was it was an actual patronage or it was a sort of historical. This person used to be a patron, um, mm. where there was a lady of the manor who he said it felt like spiritual warfare, and he just he told oh. this horrible story about going to tea with her and her essentially being an enemy and not liking him and not liking what he was doing in the parish. Um, yeah. That's the nightmare scenario where um, the person who has a financial power um, isn't in opposition to you. But then you also have those people in parish who are patrons in other ways in that they take you specifically under their wing um, in good ways sometimes. Mm. Um, They see, particularly if you're young and single... um, they want to look after you and protect you and they'll sort of lend you some of their st- their standing in the community, as it were, by vouching for you, um, for good or for bad. Like, oh my uh, goodness. I, I think there's other ways to interpret patron- patronage as well. I have to say, I am freaking out about this idea because <laughs> as an absolutely massive people pleaser, I am, I suddenly am terrified if I ever am in a parish in the future with a patron, I'm scared that I would become a Mr. Collins. There, I said it. I feel like I've entered into confessional. I didn't even know I needed to, but I think I would. Like, you know, for them to, oh, goodness, it raises a huge dilemma, to be fair. Now I'm starting to feel more compassion for Mr. Collins. I'm a huge people pleaser, and I think this is why I have so much compassion for Mr. Collins. Because I I over-apologise when I've upset someone, I, um... Caitlin, you are not Mr. Collins. I, I'm not, but... but... <laughs> you are, before you compare yourself, you are sunshine and delight Thank and you. kindness and genuineness. But, but I, he is swirmy-wormy. But I feel, but the problem is, I think I see him as someone I could have become. Mm. Like, um, I remember when I first started, I said I started leading stuff when I was 15. I did not have any sort of sense of authority at that point. When I started leading things... I sort of became quite bossy and I remember a really devastating moment when I was um, 17 where someone from that youth group came to me and said, yeah, we think you're full of yourself and you think you're better than us. Mm. Um, that was tra- That was, I mean, a huge changing turning point for me because I'd never had that intention. But mm. the way that I um, tried to create authority for myself obviously gave that impression. Mm. Um, so I think... Mr. Collins is, he's so easy to become if you are insecure. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And Miss L- Lady Catherine has taken him under a wing. If we're reading charitably, you know, this relationship. <laughs> and actually, um, one of the reasons I really like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is that they actually really frame Lady Catherine in a really positive light. Um, <laughs> she's a badass. She's, she's, she's a badass in this, isn't um, she? And... I think, you know, she takes him under his wing and she takes a risk on him. And if you're being uncharitable and pessimistic, then she's picked someone who she knows she can control. If you're being charitable, um, 
then actually she's taking a risk on someone and she's being really supportive and encouraging. And it's probably actually somewhere in the middle ground. Mm, um, interesting. Neither saint nor sinner. Mr. Collins is totally reliant on Lady Catherine being pleased with him. Um, his whole mm. living, his, his whole stability, Charlotte's living as well, um, and her safety and ability to even be fed, right? At the end of Pride and Prejudice, when Elizabeth and Darcy get engaged, we see that go wrong for Mr. Collins and Charlotte. Because when they get engaged, when Elizabeth and Darcy get engaged, and Charlotte is supportive because Elizabeth is her friend, mm -hmm. Charlotte and Mr. Collins have to go and stay with Charlotte's family. They have to escape Hunsford and escape Lady Catherine's displeasure. But they've done it the other way earlier, haven't they? Where he comes and relays Lady Catherine's displeasure about the engagement of um, Lydia and Mr Wickham and mm. comes and censures the girls on, uh, yeah, that the, it would, there's the line about it would have been better if the, the, their sister had died mm. as opposed to have such a um, atrocious match. Mm. So, yeah, this is why patronages can be dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> my feet are getting itchy for a turn about the yeah, room sorry <laughs> i wanted to say that episode. so one last theme i'd like to briefly touch on um briefly discuss while we're thinking about mr collins is that of clericalism or clergy exceptionalism now let me explain what i mean um mr collins makes it clear that he thinks clergy follow different social rules to everyone else um elizabeth finds this embarrassing because he goes and introduces himself to mr darcy and oh, yeah. he sees this as um mr collins says he thinks that it's his duty because he knows mr darcy's aunt and he want he feels like he needs to go and say hello and say last time i met your aunt she was in good health separating this from elizabeth's embarrassment and mr collins's pomposity what do we think about Great words. this? Do we think that clergy can and should follow different social rules to everyone else? And particularly in that sense of, I think I agree, not that he thinks that he thinks clergy have the highest rank in the kingdom, and that's reasoning. I think that's nonsense. No. But I do think that we do operate across social boundaries. And I know at events, I've gone and introduced myself to the personage in the room i haven't you know found someone to introduce me i've gone up and said hi i'm the local vicar i'm kate and i think actually mr collins as much as mr darcy doesn't like it as much as elizabeth doesn't like it i think he's justified in going and saying hey i know your aunt she's my patroness <laughs> she's well you know what yeah. do you think have you ever done that sort of thing where you've gone and introduced yourself to somewhere you felt like you've needed to break the social conventions in that way i think a lot of our jobs is introducing ourselves to people and, and being amongst people and getting to know them mm. and just saying hi i'm rev so and so i'm mm. vicar of here and um, what are you guys up to and actually a lot of a lot of your role is chatting to people isn't it mm. getting to know them and um i think especially in Collins's case, I know it's different because of societal mm. norms at that time. In that case where he does go and say hello to Mr. Darcy, I think that makes sense because that familial connection. Mm. Um, but 
Uh, I have just thought now, why doesn't Lizzie introduce them? Is she able to, as a woman, introduce someone to someone else? Or is she not because she's she's a girl? Um, or, uh, I know she's embarrassed by him and doesn't want to introduce <laughs> him to Mr. Darcy. He will consider got... it an impertinence. Yeah. <laughs> but he, you know, it, was she someone who could have solved some of the problems in that by making that introduction, um, even though she finds Mr. Collins embarrassing and therefore doesn't want to be associated with him? I think she could have. But she doesn't want to be associated with Mr. Collins and she doesn't want to be associated with Mr. Darcy either at that point. Yeah. So She changes her mind. She changes her mind, but... Yeah, someone else could have introduced Collins to Darcy. We do work in kind of different ways socially as well. Mm. Um, And we do end up sometimes hobnobbing with the the big wigs Mm. uh, in various different situations and, and... I think how you approach it is uh, very different. If you see this as a person and go, yeah, it's just another normal Mm. person, you know, know, they just happen to have quite a fancy job title or quite a lot of money and things like that. Um, Your attitude towards them needs to be different. But I think the acting thing as well, I think you definitely act different Mm. in the world when you're clergy and I think that's evidenced when clergy get together and Mm. it's just clergy and uh, sometimes we can get a little bit riotous (laughs) yeah riotous I think where Mr Collins goes wrong and I think where actually owning up I think clergy we can fall into this sometimes is where the shadow side of feeling like we can and should cross social boundaries that we should kind of greet everyone and be on a level with everyone is it's then you can fall into, and this is what Mr. Collins does, thinking you are part of those higher circles and you're part yeah. of that mm. higher status in your. It makes me cringe so much. I'm, I'm literally pain. dying over here. I think <laughs> I think because for me, I think if there is a difference, if there is a being, if being different mm. to clergy, it should be that you are the one that looks the lowest in the room. Mm. Like you are the servant. You've got your towel ready to wash the feet. Yeah. Sorry to be so Jesusy. Like or to like. Mm. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like you're like, oh yeah, of course you should be like Jesus. But do you know what I mean? If you're going to be different, and this whole idea of like schmoozing mm. and oh, I just. I find it makes my insides go wiggly, like squirmy. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, but I, I do recognise it. I do recognise it, and I think I think it's one of the things that actually, if you are in a position where you know you could be put on a pedestal or you could be um, cherished, celebrity. exactly. Mm. Then I just think every opportunity to to reteach people about what that looks like. Mm. Yeah, the point of clergy is that if we have power, we're meant to use that power to help people who don't have power and to serve everyone. And it's the whole Jesus was a servant king. That's the model we're meant to follow. That's what authority is meant to be. It's meant to be serving others. So when you go and introduce yourself to the most powerful person in the room... You're doing it not so that you can be hobnobbing, um, but so that you have those connections so that you, if, for example, there's a problem that that person has the power to solve, you can bring it to them. So 
I mean, if we're looking back to Lady Catherine, it's Mr. Collins saying, um, your, your tenants aren't being looked after, um, and so I'm telling you that, so it, and you need to make a change. Well, he wouldn't do that so directly, and I doubt he ever did quite that way, but that's the sort of relationship you want to see, is saying, mm. you have the power to make the change, and I'm going to convince you to make that change through our relationship. Mm-mm. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, I can understand that way of working. I'm just thinking about in my life at the moment. I'm thinking if there was a powerful person in the room, I almost certainly wouldn't go and introduce myself to them because I'd be so afraid of a love actually situation between Hugh Grant, Prime Minister, and Martine McClutchin as her <laughs> lovely character. I just what? had a premonition I was going to fluff. I just, I, I just, I don't think I would go and introduce myself to somebody because I would almost certainly put my foot in it. My words don't come out well at the best of times, let alone if there was a high pressure situation or I was feeling a little flustered. I have to say there was one occasion where I met. Uh, met isn't even the right word. I was briefly in close proximity to Archbishop Justin Welby. Oh my gosh, I'm getting sweaty just thinking about it. I know, I, I thought um, maybe it would be good to just say hello and, and mm. that kind of thing, but also was very aware that, oh goodness me, this is really quite an important person and um, uh, they wanted to speak to the person that I was talking to and um, uh, I, I, I probably should just gently retire from mm. this conversation in order to low step back <laughs> like that um the gif of homer simpson just <laughs> going back into a hedge <laughs> felt a bit like that i know what happened what happened L- like nothing oh. nothing oh. did you then, slip, did you slope back into the hedge uh, i i did kind of mm. slightly slope back but then equally and this is in danger of me sound, sounding a bit like Lady Catherine de Bourgh is my patroness. Um, I'm connected with Bishop Thorpe Palace and the Archbishop mm-hmm. of York. So have seen Archbishop Stephen on a regular mm-hmm. basis and had a nice chat with them and had lunch and talked about mm-hmm. the football and that kind of Very thing. Cool. Um, so, you know, it's, it's funny, isn't it? You end up in these different mm-hmm. situations. So, yeah, it's something about your scope of authority or the scope of your ministry so does it make sense in this situation for me to be introducing myself and saying who I am? It makes sense in my parishes to go up to um, the people who own the big farms when there's these big events and they're hosting one of these big events and say, mm, hi, yeah, I'm the local definitely. vicar. Um, yeah. Because I'm their vicar and it's good to have that connection that they know who I am and so that hopefully we can work together in the future for the betterment of a parish. However, if I was visiting family, um, say I was visiting my sister in Scotland and we went to something in their village and the Lord of their manor was there, it would make no sense whatsoever for me to go <laughs> and introduce them to my, myself to them and say, hi, yes. I'm a vicar yeah. down in Herefordshire. That is the um, difference. I'm, yeah. I'm Lucy's sister. Um, I mean, maybe if I knew someone that that person knew, and it's like, oh hi, and I'm they were so very well friend. when I left them three days ago. Exactly. Like <laughs> that's why I'm not as offended by Mr. Collins coming up to Mr. Darcy. Because <laughs> there is a link there, a logical link of why he would go and say Yes. Hi, I, I know your aunt. And Maybe she's he does really love her as well. He's keen to make mm. contact so he can go back to Lady Catherine de Berg and tell her of his adventures well, to he, make that he he's mingled that with lady catherine really loves darcy mm. and she wants him as a son-in-law um 
she she will want to know if he's met Darcy and how Darcy's doing and if Darcy's mm. interested in any ladies. <laughs> <laughs> ladies. Ladies. I think one of the big things that put us off Mr. Collins is his social climbing mm. in different ways and his wanting to get that different status. And I think that is something that clergy are in danger of doing mm. at different times. And I think there's people that we know that we will not name because that's mean, uh, who we see that trait in them and go, they're, they're trying to introduce themselves to this person and mm. this person in order to get that social standing. And there can be a bit of a race, isn't there, amongst clergy of those who want to be bishops. Mm. And actually those who are desperately striving to be become bishops probably shouldn't become bishops mm. <laughs> um and there there is a bit of yeah we're guilty of it because we are humans mm. and we fail and we want power and 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 influence and that kind of thing in different ways and um that's not necessarily a good thing for us all I believe that it was Jane Austen who said, and I, this sort of relates and sort of doesn't, that actually coming off the back of that, Ruthie, is that naturally as humans, we are all very self-centred. Like we want to thrive. We want to be held in high esteem. But I'm sure it was Jane Austen who said being self-centred or, sel- or selfishness is the one sin that must always be forgiven in others mm. because it's the one thing that we can never avoid. Like no one can avoid Ooh. it. Now, I could be wrong. I will do my homework afterwards. I will do my no, research, but I'm sure it was her that said well. it. Yeah. I think you're talking about one of the Crawfords. Mm. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Because that, that also honestly changed my life. Because I find myself often being self-centred or selfish or thinking, mm. oh, da, 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 da. And I'm like, oh, Jenny, how dare you think that? And then I think, actually, no, I would choose to have compassion on myself mm-hmm. because um, of what she'd written. Okay, exactly. Mm. But don't be Mary Crawford. (laughs) So to close off all that we've talked about today, Mm. I think the main question that we want to ask you is how you teamed Collins or not. That's funny. I may live to regret being so intense (laughs) on Mr. Collins, but right now in this No, flag your fly with pride. And I really want want to encourage everyone, and I want to encourage you, Ruthie, um, to... Reread or rewatch. I think reading might be easier um, to do this. Um, reread Mr. Collins, Pride and Prejudice, if you want as a whole. I'm going to do it as a whole. Um, separate, trying to separate yourself from Elizabeth Bennet. Um, we know the story is called Pride and Prejudice. Um, Mr. Darcy's Pride and Elizabeth's Prejudice. Prejudice. I think one of her prejudices that we see is how she views Mr. Collins. Um, And I think it would be fascinating, and I I think it is fascinating, I found it fascinating to try and separate this character from the perception of the character from whom all the description is coming. Fine, I'll go read some more Jane Austen. I have to. (laughs) We always have set homework whenever we have these more spicy episodes with different interpretations <laughs> of things. Yeah. Well, ladies, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. Uh, and mm. if we now retire to the drawing room, I believe there'll be, uh, it's time for tea. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Vickers Watch Dibley. 
Thank you to Toby for editing our ramblings. Any views expressed in this podcast are our own and don't necessarily represent those of the Church of England or any other organisations with which we are affiliated. And as always, bless you for listening. Did you hear about the new British period drama? No. They're calling it Bloody Hell. (laughs) (laughs) Very good.